Hey everyone, this is usually the time I tell you about our email newsletter, but I wanted to talk to you about something else. As of January 2023, It's All Journalism is hosted on Spotify's Megaphone platform, so you can subscribe to our podcast there, or you can continue subscribing, listening, or download new episodes of our podcast at Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, or just about anywhere you can find podcasts. But wherever you find us, please subscribe so you won't miss an episode and like and share us on your social media. And now, this week's episode. Then George Floyd happened and I recognized something much more important at stake, especially when I saw the reporting come out in June and July of that year. It was inspiring to me to see so many norms being violated so openly in the news. In the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder in 2020, many journalists began reassessing the way they covered communities of color and how those communities were represented in their newsrooms. It's 2023. How much has changed and what still needs to change? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Emery Burks is an independent journalist who writes about human rights, social justice, and international relations. Emery recently interviewed 12 journalists as part of her master's degree work for the University of Missouri School of Journalism. The focus of the project was the media industry's racial reckoning in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Emery, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you, Michael. It's been a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you here as well. It's before we get into the project, which is really kind of fascinating, tell me a little bit about yourself. What got you interested in journalism? Well, I've always wanted to be a writer, even as early as fourth grade. I was convinced I was going to be on the New York Times bestseller list before I was double digits old o'clock. But getting more specifically into nonfiction, that that passion came more when I was in China. I lived in China for 10 years from 2008 to 2018 and working there as a teacher trainer and as a writer for a few different publications Truth, I found, was uh, something of a luxury in some cases. There are certain things that it was just not profitable to discuss openly, and that frustrated me to no end. That's part of the reason why I came back to the U.S. where I could pursue this, and it was only when I came back to the U.S. to learn the American news industry that I found that actually there's a, <laughs> there's a limited amount of space for truth here, too. So that's what I ended up focusing on is uh, where truth is not allowed and where truth is increasingly allowed in news reporting. It's kind of funny. We do a pretty good job of sort of deluding ourselves that we're better in many ways. And we are in some, but maybe we're not as where we should be, I guess, maybe is the best way to put it. We're not as true to the ideals of what we should be, I guess. I, I don't know. We're um, getting there. There are changes. There are changes. We're, getting, we're striving forward. You know, going to another country that has a different system does a lot, I think, probably to give you a different perspective on your own country when you come back to it. You know, how did you end up in China? What was, uh, was it part of a program? Was it studies? Honestly, it was momentum. In high school and college, I studied Chinese largely just because some family friends pointed out that it's going to be the most spoken language in the world. And so I kept studying Chinese. And when I got to college, I was interested. So I kept studying everything Chinese. So literature, society, sociology, politics, history, economics, Japan too. But by that point, it seemed natural to go abroad. And the plan was to get two years in China, after which I'd be fluent in Chinese 
didn't exactly work that way because I fell in love with the city and the people and uh, the area there. So stayed there for a good third of my life. <laughs> wow. And I imagine that did a lot to sort of affect your uh, perspective on a lot of different things, one would think. So so tell me about this project. How did this this come about? Well, in 2020, I was getting ready to submit my master's thesis topic focusing on identity-based motivations for news consumption to help news marketers market better to news consumers. And then George Floyd happened and I recognized something much more important at stake, especially when I saw the reporting come out in June and July of that year. There were many, many changes afoot, and it was it was inspiring to me to see so many norms being violated so openly in the news. Yeah. 2020 was a pretty incredible year for a lot of different things. I don't necessarily think that a lot of us want to relive something like that, but I think we're all in many ways profoundly affected by the things that came out of that and the things that haven't come out of that and sort of the reckoning at this point of looking back and saying, okay, you know, what were we doing back then? What were we saying we were, gonna, we were going to do and where are we at? Which I guess is kind of the focus of your project, right? In large part. Yeah. I mean, at that time, it really, there was a lot of reason to be hopeful about all the changes that were happening in the industry. I mean, we had tons of journalists of color speaking openly about the systemic racism perpetuated by and inherent in the news media industry itself. It seemed as if we were starting to talk about these things much more openly. Of course, then August came and former President Trump started telling us that the criminals were going to come for us in our homes out in the countryside. And we started getting concerned about whether George Floyd was on any other substances or lots of other issues stole our, our short attention span away and... We lost that moment largely, but a lot of things have changed permanently, though. Well, let's talk about some of the things that have changed. What can you point to that say, you know, this is different than it was two, three years ago? On the one hand, you can just talk about the policies, the ethical policies that newsrooms everywhere have increasingly since 2020. A lot of them have changed their wording to specifically show respect and deference to individual perspectives. A lot more notice has been put out there to hold journalists and uh, newsrooms to be accountable. Say, for example, when the police are saying something that may not actually be true. But I think a better, a much stronger piece of evidence for the changes is how we talk about things like climate change, about the big lie, about systemic racism. Since George Floyd, you'll notice that we're much more punchy about these things. There are a lot more topics that we are afraid to present the wrong idea of. Whereas previous, before George Floyd, I think that there are a lot of things that we were nervous to present at all without evidence to back it up. And the idea that, you know, for example, you know, people who are covering politics may say, well, you know, by by saying what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, you're you're showing that you have a prejudice toward the actual events and, you know, the different political sides, you should say it was just a riot and, you know, you should, you know, bring it all back to the neutral and everything's balanced and you're not, you know, making a political judgment. But, you know, a lot of people are using the insurrection word with confidence. And I think that that's a sign I see. Absolutely. I mean, in the, in the exact same way that people are arguing about whether people should say that George Floyd was killed or the death of George Floyd versus the murder of George Floyd, NPR got caught in a lot of conversations about that. But there are a lot of other places where the use of words we use was the start of a lot of these conversations that I was focusing on in the study. Yeah. So tell me about the study. What did you do? Who did you talk to? 
Sure. I spoke to a dozen journalists, mostly journalists of color. There were two journalists who were white as well. I wanted to get some control for some of these things I was measuring for. Some major notables include uh, CBS and Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry, who's been very, very outspoken in a lot of these conversations. Also managing editor at the Minnesota Daily, Tiffany Bowie, former arts reporter at LA Times, Makita Easter, who has some really, really potent anecdotes about uh, the use of the word neutral herself. LA Bureau Chief and Professor of Practice, Shia Taif Mohajer, and a number of others, some of which have chosen to remain anonymous in discussing these issues themselves. But uh, it was a range of the, the five major racial minorities in the U.S., including Indigenous, Hispanic, and Iranian American, as well as two white Americans as well. And I conducted some structured interviews with them over Zoom about their relationship to George Floyd, about the changes that were taking place in the industry, and in particular, how they were used to people talking about their professional responsibilities. It was really important to me to see how their bosses were telling them what their jobs were. And that's where I found some of the, the more startling surprises. Just to clarify, the people who chose to remain anonymous, the reasons given... Right. Well, say, for example, one participant didn't want any identifiable information listed because they'd already spoken out a lot in public and they thought that people within their company and within the industry would recognize their voice and hear that it was more of the same or other people who hadn't been involved in the conversations at all didn't really want to be putting themselves out there so vocally because people have been fired. A lot of people have lost their work over these conversations. Yeah. And so what is it that people's companies were telling them about what their roles were as journalists, what their jobs were? Well, I can say that, especially when you ask the, the journalists of color, some of the first things that they were saying is they were told not to present their opinions, to be careful, not to weigh in too heavily on current events, not to appear at major protests. So, for example, some people got in trouble for attending Black Lives Matter protests. Some people got in trouble for calling comments of Trump's racist. So there, there were quite a few different things going on, but I'd really put the conflict as an ideological one between the two major schools of journalism right now, the positivistic ones and the more new school ones, which depending on how much detail you want to get into, I'd love to get into. Well, I tell you what, you know, this has been something of a journey, you know, having a, having a podcast where you're talking about journalism in a time when the conversation is changing very rapidly in, in 2020 and 2021, even before that, after the 2016 election, as people started to think about, well, what am I doing here? I'm reporting stories in a way that I don't feel I'm actually representing what's going on in the ground, what I'm observing, or, you know, what do you mean I can't have an opinion about something? What do you mean I, you know, if I wanted to attend a protest, not necessarily as a as a reporter, but as an individual, I can't do that. I can't express, you know, there was a very, you know, clear line that was beginning to form of not that <laughs> one side of journalism and the other side of journalism was more moral or more following the traditions. Of, I think we were all trying to figure out what does being neutral mean? What does, you know, balance mean? What does transparency mean? And, you know, is me being neutral and just evening everything out or balancing everything out, am I contributing to the problem? Right. As an example, if you don't mind, one of my uh, anonymous participants, a white person, was commenting about uh, their coverage of the uh, the unrest after George Floyd's murder. 
and they were commenting on the fact that they were reporting about which buildings were on fire and what geographic locations you should not be to stay safe. And this is a very objective use of media, but they themselves pointed out that they thought they were reporting with a white lens because how much do buildings actually matter when people right next to those buildings are getting killed or getting abused, arrested for no reason in cases. So I think we've kind of gotten into the discussion about, you know, maybe the downside, the things that were sort of revealed over the last two years and, the, and that reporters have been struggling with. We, you know, early on, we, I can't remember the, the person's name. This is somebody who spoke out about that question is, I don't want to cover the story. I, I have an opinion about these things. I think it's important that reporters express their opinion about things. And then he got clamped down because of that stance. And, you know, I'm an old journalist and, you know, brought up with the old ideals, the all the stuff in the, you know, society, professional journalism, ethics, blah, 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 blah. And so it's like, well, yeah, well, of course he's going to get knocked down because he, he shouldn't be doing that. But then you began to see the other side of the conversation, the, actually not the other side of the conversation, the wider conversation, that sometimes I feel that journalists fall back too much on the tenets and use that as a way to sort of neuter themselves in the conversation. I'm not responsible. I don't have a stake in this. I'm touching all the bases. And sometimes there are also bad reporters and there are lazy reporters who rely on handouts, who don't make those follow-up calls, who aren't really paying attention. And that inaction just creates other problems that reflect poorly on our profession. I mean, if you look at the traditional mainstream uh, institution of journalism, this model that's based on the free and independent press, one of the major tenets being objectivity, what can be verified and proven to be true, that's alone what should be in the news. And a lot of people really have this mindset. I'd say it's probably still the most common point of view. And a, a number of the, the participants in this study presented that as well. Others are presenting the question about whether it's possible to be objective in our reporting and also whether that objectivity, that thing we're calling neutral, is actually neutral or not just a representation of cis white male culture. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as being a cis white male, I can tell you that at some point you need to reckon with the fact that, you know, we're in a culture that has systemic racism and that while you may have done a lot of hard work and you may have made sacrifices and done things, you have advantages that other people do not have that you're not necessarily aware of that's not necessarily part of your worldview. And so once you recognize that, then it's like, okay, how do I function? <laughs> this is, I don't want to let's make the show about me. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm a human being and I have a point of view and you know my, my point of view is valid, but I have to understand that whatever I decide to do or whatever it is decide to say is from that particular perspective. And I have a life experience that is very different than other people. And that if I want to really have a conversation about diversity, if I really want to have diversity, you know, in the newsroom that I work in, you know, I have to, you know, step away. Sometimes I have to open up sometimes to opportunities to bring other people in so that their point of view is, driving the conversation as well. And that's a hard thing to do, I think, for a lot of people. It really is. I'm, I think that it's tempting to say that the cis white male perspective is not valuable 
in this day and age. And that's not true. It remains critical and important to the greater social discourse, but it's not really in danger of being underrepresented anytime soon. I mean, this is a voice that's been out there, you know, in strength for the majority of modern American history. And there are a lot of other voices that are very often underrepresented. And these voices, not only do we not hear them, but they also, they carry the, the perspectives of the, the biases and the blindnesses that we ourselves might not be aware of. And so the voice of color tenant of critical race theory, for example, poses that underrepresented voices have an inherent value to them that should be represented in a freedom, democracy, loving environment for the simple net uh, fact of the matter that it's worthwhile information that we're not getting otherwise. Yes, yes. Where do we go from here, I guess? I think that it's really helpful to look at the way that the audience itself is changing right now. I mean, our news consumers are watching news on TikTok and Twitter and on their podcasts and all sorts of different places. And increasingly, they can't tell the difference between a news reporter and an influencer who's just on there. And so as this is happening, a lot of the expectations for entertainment and education, they're crossing over and they're blurring. We don't just want news reporters to be factually accurate. Well, we want them to be in entertaining and accessible as well. And same way the other way around, we don't want PewDiePie on YouTube to you know, just be funny, he should also take a stance every so often. And so as this happens, the answer is not this or that, but everything. We have to increasingly be comfortable meeting all of these needs. So, you know, where do you think we're at? Do you see, I guess, a sort of movement forward in any way? I would say yes. I'm not positive the word forward is 100% explicitly the best one I would choose. It's more like two steps forward, one step diagonally, 87 steps in a circle, and then finishing, you know, a couple steps ahead, maybe. I mean, we are moving forward. We are talking about Tyree Nichols in more progressive ways than we have before. The fact that this went so fast to trial, I think, is a direct result of how our conversations about these things have changed. And we're going to continue to do that as we move forward. But we have a really short attention span. It's really easy to get sidetracked. And it's really easy for people to get fed up with a story, too, and think that we're focusing too much on it and start feeding DeSantis's anti-woke sort of campaign. But there are some things that are happening that are, are helpful. I mean, we're going to get more diverse newsrooms just because we're moving in that direction. And that's not to say we don't need to try for that. We do really need to continue to try for that. But there are a lot of other things that we aren't necessarily going to get without deliberate effort. And say, for example, some of the big things that our participants end up saying that our newsrooms needed to do, number one is newsrooms setting really clear, transparent goals for their organization and having really clear and consistent enforcement. A lot of people don't really make clear that they're publishing for democratic society or for human rights or for, you know, equal justice. A lot of newsrooms are really nervous to say things like that because it does risk scaring off a lot of their their donors, a lot of their financiers. And then you sort of get into the area of, oh, well, then you're not really a news organization. You're an advocacy group. There's that attack. So I, I need to include information and, and prevent it equally of a group that I have been able to verify is totally false in order for you to you know, accept the reporting that I'm doing. 
uh, that I'm a fair and balanced reporter. Balance. Just, <laughs> just like I need to get 85 different uh, people who think that climate change is not a thing to be on my new show just to prove that I'm balanced as well. Yeah. What is a journalist to do? What should we be doing in our newsrooms in the way we cover things? What is it do you think is a good path for us to go forward? Right. The best thing a journalist individually can do is really push back when their newsroom is wanting to speed up the story, try and get the headline faster, try and get the quote punchier, you know, by 6 a.m. So it's ready to go out for the morning news. I mean, a lot of our participants in the study ended up saying that they thought the entire economic model of the news industry was just pushing too fast, was trying too hard to get news on the paper without getting the context without getting the backstory or finding second and third and fourth opinions. So I think a lot of it is is challenging the editor to say, this is an important story, but so is this element, which we usually ignore. And that can be really challenging and really scary, I think, for a lot of journalists to do because they feel like they're shooting their shot and can get fired over it. I mean, the big thing that surprised me most from this study was that common amongst the, the journalists of color was a really persistent fear of getting fired, something that I did not report at all from any of my white participants, surprisingly. But it was also surprising to me how surprising this was, because of course, journalists of color have this fear of getting fired because they've been interacting in an environment where they've been forced to demonstrate their qualifications and their neutrality at every turn. But I will also add the four key things the participants ended up saying that newsrooms should be doing to better support our public. I mean, clear goals with consistent enforcement. Yes, slowing down the pace of reporting, building a more pluralistic newsroom culture through, you know, increased diversity. Yes. But also a huge number would not let me escape without saying reckoning with the responsibility that the media industry has personally for perpetuating this harm. I mean, the way that LA Times and Kansas City Star have, you know, not many newsrooms are going out there and saying, communities of color, we hurt you. I'm sorry. Here's what we're going to do so that we never do that again. Yeah. There's a willingness, I think, for a lot of people to want to change, to want to make things more, I don't know, more accepting, more understand. Accessible and pluralistic. Yeah. 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 Th those big words. <laughs> pluralistic. <laughs> yeah. Use that in a sentence. Now I know what it means. Yeah. No, there's, a, I think there's a willingness in, in a lot of people to continue the change. I think so too. I see this as the moral arc of our history. I mean, we're, we're moving in this direction. I mean, you can tell this just by how we talk about gay marriage now versus in the nineties, oh for example. Yeah. yeah. Don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually one of the things I point to in my, you know, I, think I'm, I know I'm a bit older than you, but I can see in the arc of my life how gay rights have changed. Are they perfect? Are they where they should be? 100% no. But I can look back and say, oh my God, I remember what it was. I see what it is now and it is entirely different. And I could not imagine back then that people would think differently or they would behave differently, but they did. So people do change. They do. The caution there, the grain of salt is that, you know, Dobbs, the Dobbs decision really did show us that the direction is not always forward. But I do think that as a society, we can reliably be predicted to be moving towards general acceptance, greater tolerance of diverse mindsets. 
But we just need to be clear that that's not something that happens normally. That's just something that happens when most of the fights that people have been making this direction outweigh the fights against that direction. Yeah. And I think, you know, I took a lot from your project and we're going to have a link to the the project because I think it, it is a good gut check of kind of where we are, to, you know, 20 at the beginning of 2023 of looking back at 2020 when everybody's saying, oh, well, now do zooms are going to finally address this diversity problem. Like it was a brand new thing that hasn't been a problem for, for decades, but was it lip service? Were we just going to go back to the same old, same old, but I'm guessing, I think from our conversation that that is not necessarily the case. I would say yes and no. Yes, there's <laughs> I'm not a trying lot to get of lip service there. <laughs> I'm not trying to get ever get, give anybody a, yeah, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. This is the yeah. fight's still in, still there, I guess. Right. I mean, uh, we were pretty convinced that Minneapolis was going to be one of the first places to really reform its policing policies, but we got caught up in the, the city charter stuff about, you know, whether or not we could change these wordings. And so we're waiting on the next push before we can have a conversation again and, and panel. So, I mean, it, progress is slow. It's it's painfully, painfully slow, but the momentum is still in the right direction, I would think. I would hope we could confidently say there are increasing number of people out there who will openly say that Black lives do matter. There are increasing number of people who will say that diverse voices in a newsroom do matter. And we're increasingly seeing a pushback against the anti-woke campaign to say that banning books is stupid and antithetical to everything we are. But it's scary. And I think that the reason that so many people are scared about these conversations is because they're moving forward. White people are going to be the minority in our country. A lot of people are convinced that, you know, these conversations are going to be increasingly normal. And a lot of the people who have power over the institutions in our society, I think that they see that they're losing it. And the only way to really lose it is to keep people from discussing these things at all. Yes. Amory, thanks for coming on. This is a great conversation. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.